Well, hello. Uh, if you're in the room, do you want to uh, finish up your conversations? Because there's a load of people out there on screen who are all busy watching now, and they're waiting for me to get started. So uh, all of this socialising, I don't know what about all that. <laughs> well, really good morning. It is so good to be here. It's so good to be with you online and in the room, and uh, lovely just to be with God's people. If you don't know me, my name's Jamie. I lead our Bradley Stoke site uh, up in the north of Bristol. And uh, hopefully by now, most of you have gotten wind of the news that, uh, that, the, that my family and I are going to be church planting. Church planting, woo, there we go, thank you. <laughs> uh, in a few months' time uh, up in Leicester. And we've been just so blessed by so many of you just being incredibly encouraging and prayerful. And um, yeah, we, uh, that has really helped us uh, as we're kind of going through these early stages. So thank you so much for those of you that have been right behind us in that way. Um, right, I'm going to pray if that's all right. Um, are you ready to, to hear from God and receive from God this morning? It's, it's different, it's all a bit strange, isn't it, in this kind of church, but you know what, God can really speak to us. So let's just, let's welcome his presence and let's just invite him. Lord God, we thank you so much for your words and we thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for how he loves to come and just reveal truth, reveal Jesus to us. And I pray right now this morning, would you speak right into every single one of our hearts, Lord God. Whatever people hear from me, I pray, Lord, that they would hear from you. God, I pray that you would meet with us, you would set us free this morning, you would speak to us, you'd call us this morning. Lord God, come and stir that word in our hearts, Lord. Let that faith rise up in us, God, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. Um, I have a few prophetic things. I'm going to leave it. I need to dive into this, but maybe at the end we can sort out some of this stuff. So, uh, yeah, right, okay. I'm going to start off. Um, I'm going to start off with some unpopular opinions, okay? So uh, I'm going to share a few of my unpopular opinions, and um, I've, got, I've got the YouTube feed here. If you're in the room as well and you're with me on any of these things, then can you give me a big, a big shout or a big cheer um, or a, at least a big wave, please, so I'm not completely on my own here. Um, so first one, this is, this is my number one unpopular opinion. Right, gravy. It's not that nice, is it? I, I, I just don't think gravy should be anywhere near a roast dinner. Is anybody with me on gravy? No. Nothing in the room. Okay, all right. Um, I'll try my other food-related one then. On the, on the flip side of that, pineapple on pizza... Genius. Yes, Dan, thank you very much. So fantastic, brilliant, yeah, wonderful. Okay, I feel a little bit less lonely now. I'm going to miss the next one. It is not appropriate in light of last night's events. Um, let's, do <laughs> let's do my next one. Um, I'm going to be honest, I would really rather have an Android. Oh, wow, wow, okay, I was not expecting that. Interesting, lots of... Uh, Sarah Lee says you can't beat chips and gravy. I, I think you'll find you can, Sarah, but, but all right, we'll, we'll let you have that one. Okay, final one, final one. Reality TV. All reality TV is excruciating, I find. Yes, okay, so, oh, wow, okay, I, I feel like I'm in with the right crowd here today. So, I mean... There's lots of things. I could say a lot of things. I could say a lot of things about Love Island. I could say a lot of things about Strictly Come Dancing. I could say a lot of things. But to me, the thing which possibly nauseates me the most about so many of these shows is the same repeated bits with the same jingle and the same music over and over again. And it is so soul-destroying. 
Probably, I think, my most nauseating reality TV, it's not necessarily the worst reality TV out there, but the one which just sends me to sleep the most, would be that great British institution, Come Dine With Me. I, I, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I love cooking. I love spending time with people. I love just, you know, getting around the meal table with people and hanging out. And there's something just, it's one of those little simple joys in life, isn't it? To, to be around with other people and eating with them and getting to know them. I don't need to watch that on a screen, though. I, I don't need to see people serve up their three-course meal for some other randomers to come along and criticize. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. But... And this may be the most tenuous segue in the entire history of preaching, so I'm going to apologize for this in advance. But if there was one meal in the history of the world where I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, it would have been the meal that we're going to look at in Scripture today between Jesus and his disciples the night before he was arrested. I told you that was tenuous. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you read the story of the Last Supper, as we call it, through all the different Gospels, you see it is one of the most poignant, the most profound, fascinating, beautiful moments in all of Jesus' life. And if you track through it, you see there's, there's moments of laughter and the hope, there's moments of confusion, there's moments of betrayal, there's moments of understanding. There's mo it's, it's just the most, it's just the richest and most amazing evening. And it's the time when Jesus is actually sharing and imparting some of his most personal teaching to his disciples in a very, very kind of personal, intimate setting. Now, the Passover meal for, for Jews is in some ways rather akin to like Christmas dinner, for example, in our culture. It's something at this moment everyone would have been doing. All of society stops for this moment. Everything, everything kind of halts for this and everybody's engaging and everybody's doing it. Rather unlike Christmas dinner, though, for us, uh, the, the Passover meal was, was deeply meaningful. It was steeped in meaning. It was rich in symbolism. And it was actually quite formal, probably a lot more formal than any of our Christmas dinners are. And in itself, it was an act of worship and devotion to God. So I'm going to read a few verses. If I can, I'm reading from someone else's Bible. I managed to leave this at home. Uh, so it's a very tiny print. It's a lovely Bible. Thank you, Lucy. Um, so... <laughs> Let me read these verses. If, you're, if you've got your phone or your Bible with me, turn to Luke chapter 22. This is Luke's very, very short account of a long evening, but I'm going to read a few verses, starting at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you, for I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you've ever been to a Jewish Passover Seder, or even a Christian Passover Seder, I suppose, you, you'll probably remember that everything is done very, in a very orderly way. There are, there are certain foods that are eaten at certain times, there are certain prayers, certain blessings, certain scriptures that are read, certain psalms that are sung, 
And actually, everything is steeped in meaning and symbolism. And then there were these four different cups of wine. You might, you might uh, be wondering why I bought four different glasses here today. I haven't filled all of them because I've you know, got to drive home after this. Um, but there were four different cups of wine that were taken at different points through the evening. If you read very carefully, you can see two of them in particular are mentioned in this passage. But there are two others that Luke doesn't refer to. And we'll look a little bit uh, at why that is later on. But everything is very meaningful and very steeped in tradition. Now, we don't really have anything like that, I think, in our Western culture. And this is just an aside to what I'm saying, but a little observation in church culture that um, sometimes taking communion and breaking bread can be one of these slightly divisive things that we have very strong opinions about. You know, that there are people on, on one end of the spectrum who want to keep everything very formal and very ritualistic, and they, they want to honor that moment by doing everything in a very proper way. And then there are others on the other end of the spectrum who want to lean into the fact this, that this was very relational. This was just friends hanging out, having a meal, keeping it very casual. And it kind of, we come to the question of, well, well, what was it then? And actually, I think the answer to that question is, yes, <laughs> it, it, it's both. It's a meal. It was a time of fellowship and friendship and, and laughter and fun and engaging together, but which was also very sober and very somber and very devoted and worshipful. And I think we struggle with that kind of juxtaposition because we don't really have that kind of thing in our culture. But actually, I think it's rather wonderful. And, and, and I, maybe we can do something to reclaim that, actually, in church life, that actually we can bring those elements together of just our togetherness and our fellowship and our, our life together as family and friends, and yet actually bringing a deep, reverential worship of Jesus through the communion meal into it. Anyway, that's beside the point. I'm moving on. So, okay. Um, let's go back to this passage. So, in, in that first bit in, um, in verses 15 and 16, he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat of it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So Jesus was saying, all of this, all of this that you've been observing and remembering for thousands of years, it is pregnant with meaning, and all of that speaks of me. He says, it's all about to find its fulfillment in my kingdom. Now, for the Jews, the, the Passover meal was all about looking back. It was about remembering into their ancient history at a time when God saved them and delivered them in quite a, a spectacular fashion. But actually what Jesus is doing is he's taking all of these different elements that they would have been very familiar with and all the promises of God and he's applying them to himself. He's saying they're all about to find fulfillment in me, especially in what I'm about to do on the cross as I die and I rise again. Now, in the book of Exodus, way back in Exodus, there's a couple of, couple of lines. It's just a couple of verses, really, in chapter 6, where God gives them four absolutely stonking promises through Moses about how he was going to rescue and save his people. And you can track through history of how God did do that, how he saved them, he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, he blessed them and brought them to himself. And what Jesus is doing is he's tying these four promises, the four promises of the different cups of wine that they were drinking, and he applies them to himself. And he's saying, actually, these have a much, much deeper fulfillment in what I'm going to do, and I'm going to save you, not just out of slavery in Egypt, but out of your sin. And so whilst Jesus is affirming these promises, 
He's saying, actually, these apply to me. And when we understand this, it brings an incredible depth of faith to our breaking bread together. Because actually, breaking bread can and should bless us incredibly as we take it. Not just something that we go through because it's Sunday and that's what we do, but it will bless us richly if we take it in faith. So keep your finger in Luke. I'm just going to flick back very quickly to, uh, to Exodus. This would have been very fresh in their minds as they were around the table. They would have read this. They'd have recited it. They'd have talked about it. So in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 6, God makes these promises through Moses. He says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will, here's the first one, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Secondly, I will free you from slavery to them. Third of all, he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. And then finally into verse 7, he says, I will take you as my own people. And as they took that first cup of wine, they were beginning to remember and they were beginning to honor this first promise of God that he would bring them out. But Jesus says this in a much deeper way applies to me. That just as God called his people out of the the darkness and the sin and and the death and the brokenness that characterized their life in Egypt, actually Jesus calls to us and he calls us out of our old life into a new life in him. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, it says, He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There may be some watching, listening to me this morning, maybe you're, you're, you're still investigating this Christian faith, this Jesus fellow, and you might be thinking, do you know what? Okay, I hear that, but I'm not sure that really characterizes my life. I'm not sure that I need Jesus to call me out. I, I, you know, I th- I, I'm not sure that death and slavery and oppression really characterizes where I'm at. I, thank you very much, Jesus. I'm, I'm not sure I need that. But you know what? We can have everything sorted out in life and yet be completely empty. We can have a great life, a great job, a great career path, a great partner, a great house, fitness, you know, you can be absolutely smashing your morning routine. Every, you, know, you can have all of your proverbial stuff together and yet be completely in darkness spiritually and yet be completely locked in sin spiritually. And that's because there's nothing wrong with, with any of these things, with the career, with the, with the, with the kids, with the whatever it is that you've got that's good in your life. It's just that is not where true life is found. That's not where true fulfillment, where true light is found. It's found in a relationship with our creator. And Jesus actually says that unless we're called out of that old life, we're still going to be locked in patterns of sin. Now that's not because we're so unusual or something strange has happened to us. As the book of Romans says, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And this can seem very strange to us often because... We can be very sincere. We can sincerely want to live a good life. We can sincerely want to make a contribution. We can sincerely want to help the planet. We can sincerely want to leave a strong legacy and and care for our children and, and all of these things. And yet, if we're honest, there's that other side to our life that's still in darkness where we are capable of the most grievous, self destructive sin against ourselves and against others and it doesn't seem to tally with us because we're we're so sincere 
And Jesus answers this dilemma. He says it is because everyone who sins is a slave of sin. He talks about our weakness to break free ourselves. And that is why he says, I call you out. I'm calling you to myself. Out of sin, out of slavery to darkness. I'm calling you into new life. He also says that he's not just calling us out of our old life, but he's calling us us out of the punishment, the judgment due to us for our old life. And at this Passover meal, they would have, as they came up to eat, they would have just come up from downstairs around the outside of their home where they would have reenacted what was done thousands and thousands of years before when they would have taken the blood of the Passover lamb, which was probably doing quite nicely in the oven by now, and they would have applied it to the doorposts of their, of their, of their home. And they were remembering the time thousands of years before when the judgment that was going to come upon the Egyptian people for how they brutally oppressed and enslaved them, that judgment was going to pass over. It wasn't going to fall on them. And it's important to realize, and they would have realized, that God's passing over of judgment was nothing to do with their inherent goodness. It wasn't because his people were inherently so much more noble or so much more righteous than the Egyptians. Had they been in the Egyptians' position, they probably would have oppressed them just the same. God's judgment passed over because he saw the blood. And Jesus said, this is fulfilled in me. At this point later on, he would have taken the bread there would have been three, past, three pieces of this unleavened bread. I've actually, thankful Morrison's, they, they've got the stuff. Anyway, he would have broken this piece. He, one half of it then would have been broken into much tinier pieces, and they would have spread it around. And he said, actually, this is my body. It is broken for you. This is my blood. It's poured out for you. And actually, in the same way that God's judgment passes over or pass over in those days because nothing to do with them, nothing to do with their own righteousness, their own efforts, their own prayerfulness. It was because he saw the blood. In the same way now, when we receive the bread, when we receive the wine, God's judgment passes over us because God sees the blood. It's nothing to do with you. Listen, God's forgiveness, God's acceptance of you God's love for you has nothing to do with your performance. Nothing. It has nothing to do with your prayerfulness, with your church attendance, with how you've been living over the last six months or the last six days. It has everything to do with the blood of Jesus. It's not about you. You might say, Jamie, how can I know? How can I have confidence that God loves me? How can I have confidence that he forgives me? How can I be assured that I'm saved? Listen, look at the blood. It's not about you. (laughs) It's not about you. It doesn't matter how complicated your life is right now. There's nothing complicated about the blood of Jesus. It's all about him. When he sees the blood, he passes over. God's judgment cannot, it will not fall on you because it has already fallen on him. Zach agrees with no gravy. Excellent. Sorry. Second part of that promise. (laughs) The second part of that promise was that he wouldn't just deliver them out of Egypt. He would deliver them from slavery. He would deliver them from being bound in bondage to that slavery. 
The cup would have been refilled at this point, and they were honoring, they were drinking to this second promise. You might think, that just sounds a bit the same, doesn't it? How does being delivered out of bondage, being delivered out of slavery, how is that any different from being brought out of Egypt? Kind of sounds like two ways of saying the same thing. I think the nuance of this, I think the first part of the promise was about God bringing his people out of Egypt. I think the second part of the promise is about God getting Egypt out of them. Because if you read the story, you see that even though they'd been physically delivered, they'd come out into the desert and eventually into the promised land, they still carried all of that idolatrous, oppressive, sinful culture in their hearts to a large degree. God had to bring them to himself. He had to teach them who he was. He had to teach them what it meant to live as his people. Because they had come out of Egypt, but Egypt hadn't fully come out of them. And it can be the same with us, that when... God calls us out. He calls us out of darkness to himself that we can find ourselves sometimes still bound in those things that we once lived in. You see this in a number of different characters in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 8, there was a guy called Simon. He had, he had a background in, in, in magic. He'd made quite a name for himself and quite a fortune in, in practicing magic in this particular place. And Luke records how when someone came to preach the gospel, he believed and he was baptized. Luke points out these two things. He believed and he was baptized. So we know he was a Christian. And yet he was so tightly bound by his old lifestyle of, of profiteering off of magic that he, he actually comes up to Peter at one point and, and offers to bribe him for the power of the Holy Spirit. He offers to buy the ability to lay hands on people and get them baptized in the Holy Spirit. Peter, you can imagine, he's not especially impressed with this and he, he properly lays into him. He, he tells him he needs to get down on his knees and repent. And he says this, he says, I can see that you are poisoned by bitterness and you are bound by iniquity. He'd been saved from the sins of his old life, but his old life was still to a degree in his heart. Maybe Lazarus. You remember Lazarus who got raised from the dead? He can be quite an interesting illustration of this, that Jesus literally called Lazarus out, physically called him out of death. He was physically dead, and, and there he is. He's genuinely alive. He's moving. He's walking or kind of, you know, hobbling around like this. What's the first thing Jesus says? He says, take the grave clothes off him. Because he ain't getting very far in his new life, wrapped up, bound up in all of this stuff. He's not going very far. And it can look like that as Christians sometimes. We've come to life, we know we have, it's evident that we have, and yet there are things still inside us. It's like we didn't get the memo that there is power in the blood of Jesus, not only to forgive our sin, to cover our sin, but also to break sin's power. There's power not just to save us, but to deliver us. And if you are here as a Christian this morning, and you feel like there's areas in your life where you are still bound, I want you to hear this promise. You're, you know, it feels like maybe you're still in Egypt, so to speak. I want you to hear the promise of God that there is power in his blood to set you free as well. It doesn't matter what your past was like. The blood of Jesus is stronger than your past. It doesn't matter if you've opened up your life even to the demonic. There is no demon in all of creation that can stand up to the power of the blood of Jesus. He's there to set us free. So as I said, Jesus, then in verse 19, it says, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. 
We should remember that actually this was all very normal. When he said, do this in remembrance of me, the emphasis really wasn't on the do this. These were all very good observant Jews. So they would have done this anyway, every time the festival came around, just like you're going to have your Christmas turkey this year. They, they would have done it. What Jesus is really getting to is he's saying, when you do this, I want you to observe me. I want you to recognize that this speaks of me. I want you to honor me and acknowledge me in it because everything that I'm doing here, this is my body. This is finding its fulfillment now in my kingdom as I go to the cross. Acknowledge me because it is about me. The next verse, let me just make sure I get this right. Then he said, after taking the cup, that's the next cup, he gave thanks and said to take this and divide this amongst you. For I will tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until, it come, until the kingdom of God comes. I've been reading the wrong verse, sorry. Verse 20. In the same way, after supper, they'd have eaten the lamb at that point, he took another cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. The next promise they would have been honoring at the moment was the promise to redeem them. If you redeem something, it means you're, you're kind of taking or you're buying something back. It's something that ought to be yours, but it isn't, and now you're taking hold of it. It's like, it's like God was saying, you, you should be mine, I made you to be mine, but you're not mine, but now I'm going to bring you to myself. I'm going to pay a price and I'm going to redeem you back to myself. And Jesus explained how he was going to do that. He said he was going to do it by, by making or by cutting a new covenant. Now, stay with me for a minute. I went a few years ago. I've, I've actually had several unsuccessful attempts to give blood in my life. Every time I go, there seems to be a problem. Either I've fallen over and cut myself or I've fallen off my bike or something. They never seem to want my blood. But anyway, if you've ever been to give blood, you'll know that there's a certain tick list of things that you have to tick off that you don't have certain tropical diseases or you haven't done this or done that recently. I've got a friend, though, who lives in another part of the world. He lives in a part of Africa who, anytime he goes to give blood, there's always a question on that list, which is never on my list, interestingly. And the question is, have you become a blood brother with anyone recently? Has anyone ever ticked or, or failed to tick that box on a form? No, probably not. But in some parts of the world, that is a reality. And certainly through many parts of history, cutting a covenant, entering into a blood covenant with somebody was a very common way of, of, of agreeing and doing things. And Jesus, you can see through the history of the Bible, or God rather, through the history of the Bible, made different covenants with different people or with humanity as a, way, as a very solemn vow, a way of guaranteeing his faithfulness and his promise. He could just give his word. He is God, but he enters into covenant as a way of guaranteeing his promise to people. Now, normally, if you enter into a covenant with someone, there are various terms of the covenant. Each, each party will kind of draw up a list of very binding oaths, things that they're committing to. And God's old covenant in the Old Testament was an example of this. There were, there were things that were God's responsibility to do and the things that were our responsibility to do. It was, as it were, a conditional covenant. It was, do this and you will live. Abide by these laws and I will bless you. Everything was conditional. It was, if you do this, then I will do this. And yet Jesus now comes and he speaks of inaugurating a new covenant 
It was a covenant, actually, that had been prophesied thousands and thousands of years ago by Jeremiah. And the promises of this new covenant are quite remarkable. I'll read them. They're quoted again in in the book of Hebrews. I'll just summarize them very quickly. He says, this is the covenant I will establish. He says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors, saying one to another, know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So there, if, you, if you read this through, just meditate on it. There's some radical promises here. He says, I will remember your sins no more, ever. When God looks at you, when he wakes up, so to speak, in the morning and says, oh, there, there they are. He never brings to mind your sin. When he looks at you, he refuses to consider or bring to remembrance any of the ways in which you failed. Isn't that amazing? He says, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. He promises that deep, intimate relationship with him. This isn't just a knowing about somebody. This is a relational knowing. It's an intimate knowing. It's a knowing of union and oneness. He says, I'll be their God and they'll be my people. He promises that fatherly relationship with us every day of our lives. And then amazingly, he says, I'm going to put my laws in their minds. I'm going to write them on their hearts. I'm going to start transforming them from the inside. So they're going to want to do the things that please me. They're not going to have to strive with these external rules, laboring away to try and be a better person. No, he says, I'm going to put it deep inside them. It's going to start welling up within them. And so we see these amazing, radical promises of God. And then you're like turning the page, trying to find, well, where's my bit? This is what you're going to do, God. Okay, where are the conditions? Where's the, where's the bit that I have to live up to? What's the standard that I have to reach? And you're kind of thumbing through and you're looking through and you're realizing it's not there. <laughs> this is an unconditional covenant. It is a gift given to us of grace. And when two people or two parties would have entered into a covenant in the ancient world, they would have had a meal like this. They would have had a meal and they would literally feed each other bread and wine. It was a way of joining themselves together spiritually. It was a way of saying, into you I put me. It was a way of committing themselves. And as we do this, as we take the bread and the wine of the new covenant, we're receiving Jesus And all his promises again. It's a way of God saying, into you I put me. And we appropriate, as it were, again, that that promise of intimate relationship. We appropriate his fatherly love of us. We appropriate that complete, unconditional forgiveness. We appropriate that power inside us to change because he's writing his law in our hearts and our minds. Because he's giving us the strength. He's changing us from the inside out. And we realize... It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. All we need is faith. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't take the fourth cup. I'll speculate in a minute why that might be, but I'll just mention it briefly. The fourth cup was known to the Jews as the cup of God's presence. It was a cup that was attached to the promise where he says, I'm going to take you to be my people. Do you know what? The goal of God saving you wasn't just that you'd be forgiven. The goal of God saving you wasn't just a get out of hell free card. You know, the goal of God saving you 
was you. <laughs> he wanted to bring you to himself. He had you in his heart. He had you in his mind. It's like in the old fairy stories when the, when the brave knight goes off and rescues the, the princess that had been captured in the tower. Does he do that just because he's a brave and noble knight and that's what brave and noble knights do? No. We all know what's going on there, don't we? <laughs> maybe he is a brave and noble knight, and maybe he would have done it anyway. But listen, he was interested in relationship with the princess. Okay? When Jesus gave his life for us on the cross, it wasn't just out of pity. It wasn't just because he couldn't bear the idea of us being in hell forever. He brought us to himself. He says, I'm going to bring you to be my people. I want you. He didn't just save us for salvation. He saved us for us. And when Jesus called us out of our life of sin and darkness, it's so that he can be very close to us. It's the cup of his presence, the Jews called it. And when we take bread and we take wine, I, I, I'm really passionate about this. We, we mustn't let it become a dry, ritualistic thing. We call it communion for a reason. Communion, that word in the New Testament, it talks of fellowship, it talks of oneness, it talks of intimacy and closeness. And that is what the Holy Spirit wants with us now. And if you've missed it, if you've missed that, you've kind of missed the goal of your salvation. That God wants to come and live within you. As we take the bread and the wine, as, as God says, into you I put me, it's our opportunity to say, yes, come Holy Spirit. I want to know you in this way again. I want to be refreshed in your presence. You know, in John's account of this meal, he, he, he's, he's trying to reason with them. He's trying to help them understand that he's going away physically. You know, he, they'd spent the last three years of their life with this guy, walking with him, eating with him, doing amazing miracles with him. Just, it would have been the most radical thing. And yet here Jesus says, I'm going away and I'm going to send somebody in my place, the Holy Spirit. And I think it's fair to say the disciples were not highly impressed by this idea. And Jesus was trying to impress upon them, no, it is so much better that he is with you. We in, in 21st century Bristol have access to a depth of knowledge of God that even the disciples in those days never would have had. Because they knew him as a man, they knew him as a friend, they knew him as a saviour. He was never in them. He was never in them. That is what God promises us, that his spirit will fill us. And, and, and I, want us to, I want us to hear this this morning. I know I need to bring this into land in a minute. But I, I think some people in particular, maybe you're watching here, maybe you're on the live stream. You need to hear this call and this promise of God because... I think we're living in a day, we're living in a generation of the church where we are very comfortable with talking about this stuff and singing about this stuff. You know, even some of the lyrics and the things that we sang this morning, if you'd tried to sing things like that maybe in a church 30 or 40 years ago, it would have got people's backs up and you, know, this would have, you, you can't talk about God like this. And, and actually God in his grace through the charismatic renewal and moves of the Spirit through the last decades have brought us into a place where we are very comfortable with the language of intimacy with God. And yet so precious few of us will walk in that day by day or will even know what it means to be deeply baptized in the Holy Spirit. And yet this is the promise. And I don't know why Jesus didn't take this last cup. I didn't know why, you know, if you read through the stories, it seems as though they kind of raced straight onto the hymn singing and off they went and Jesus left this one behind. There's, theologians will offer different explanations of why that is. I think Jesus is saying, listen, there is more. 
there's something that you still need to wait for because there is a depth of knowledge of me that you've not experienced yet. And actually, even when Jesus had risen and he came to the disciples and he gave them the great commission and he told them, go into all the world and make disciples and, and all of this, there was a caveat, wasn't there? He said, wait, just a few more days. I want you to wait into Jerusalem until power from on high, the Holy Spirit from on high has clothed you. He says, there's something more. I think maybe that's what Jesus was getting at in leaving this last cup, the cup of the presence. He was saying to them, do you know what? I believe there is something more. And maybe God wants to speak to some of you this morning and just look you in the eye, so to speak, and say, there is more. If you've missed this, if you've received my grace, you've received my forgiveness, you're striving away to read your Bible every day and be a good person and live up to this Christian life, stop just receive me. I want to fill you to overflowing with the Holy Spirit and do all of this in you. There's loads more we could say. I need to, to move on. We're going to break bread in a minute. Ben is going to come and, and lead us. I just want to encourage us as a church in this minute now, but, but also just in our, in our homes and on Sundays as we go forward. Let's, let's lean into the Lord's Supper, shall we? When we're around as friends, let's, let's bring that into our daily lives. Let's bring that into our gathering together. When we're here on Sundays, let's, let's enter into it and let's do it with faith. You know, faith, in, with, as with anything in the kingdom of God, faith is the, the difference between it just being a rote thing that we do and being pumping full of life and transformational. And Andy Cott often, you know, he often says this. He says, when we take bread and wine on a Sunday or whenever we take it, our week should look different, <laughs> yeah? Things, we will be blessed. Things will go differently. Our relationships will be different. Our work will be different. Our, our prayer life will be different because as we take it in faith, we are receiving afresh all of those promises. And I want to invite us this morning, listen, if you're in that place where you think, I'm not even sure if I know Jesus, maybe this is the morning where you can respond to his call and say Yes. I'm coming out of my old life, I'm running to you. Maybe you know him, but you know that you are just, there's the stuff going on in your life and you can't seem to break free of it. And this is the moment where you're going to take this in faith and know that God is going to set you free. Maybe this is the moment where you just need to say, Holy Spirit, as I receive this, I want to receive you. Maybe for the first time, maybe afresh, I'm going to take this upon myself. So I'm going to hand over to Ben. He's going to lead us through this next part in a moment.